This week on the show, we tell you about to write admin tools for day one, differentiating between data security and data integrity. A 45-year-old Unix tool is finally getting an upgrade, but we won't tell which it is until you listen to the episode. OpenBSD 7.2 on an Odroid H4, dot file management, and more. This week's episode of BSD now. BSD Now episode 493, .file management, recorded on the 18th of January 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out the Patreon page that we have on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Hopefully this podcast finds you well. Uh, it's time to bring you the headlines for this week. And the first is about writing admin tools from day one. And uh, I think this was featured on Hacker News, but I think it's good enough to cover on a BSD podcast because sysadmins. And this goes, write admin tools from day one. The problem first, uh, writing useful features for your users is key to a successful product. It makes sense then that you should maximize your time writing features for those users. This approach is very effective at the beginning of a project's or a product's life, but over time, you may find you are spending more time maintaining the product than developing it. Some of the biggest development time sucks can be tracking down the cause of unexpected behavior, fixing data, answering user or team member questions, running maintenance scripts or other ad hoc tasks. Okay. Then the O-beep solution. These small support tasks start to add up and there is no easy way to offload the work to product or support. You and your development team reach a breaking point where you must prioritize administrative tools. Unfortunately, you will slow down your new feature development even more in the short term. It will take time for those tools to be developed and take effect to lower your support load. Uh, there's a couple of visualizations in there and a two by two matrix or yeah yeah but, so uh, in the in the first one uh they have the development time and improving features uh as the top part of the block of time so your your time is a fixed amount of time that you have uh going forward but as the project gets older you spend more and more time supporting the existing features and dealing with bugs and and users uh leaving less and less time to drive new development uh and in the first uh draft more than half the time is being spent on support by the later stage of the project. So then they look at adding admin tools. And when they do that, uh, you see there's this, especially when they take a bunch of time to stop and write the admin tools and maintain those, then it causes this big dip in the amount of uh, development time because a bunch of that time is now being redirected to the admin tools. Uh, but you do see an advantage is that eventually, once the admin tools have time to kick in, the amount of time spent supporting existing features starts to come back down uh, and not dominate. And you don't end up with more than half your time being not developing the product. Oh, yeah. I see that at work where I do a lot of Ansible playbook writing and it takes time to develop them and get them right. That is lost to day-to-day -day work. But once I have those playbooks, it's just execute them, execute them, execute them and never or rarely have to modify them again. And they make life such uh, pleasant uh, 
experiences then because you just run it yeah and the same the same thing can be for like self-service tools if if you can build tools to let users do some of the tasks themselves then there's that much less time that you're constantly being interrupted to go do x or y for mm. somebody or just you know oh we need to add another set of user accounts to all these machines or we need to deploy a new vlan and I have to make that configuration change on 12 yeah. switches if you can automate that uh then yes it took more time to do it that first time but it means every time after that it's you not get the time back big a deal. and no manual work anymore okay so the real solution they say is the only way to avoid a growing support problem or a temporary slowdown is to allocate time to develop admin tools from day one as alan said provide useful administrative tools for your team and other internal employees to leverage. Ideally, you want to write administrative tools along with the features, include supportability in the acceptance criteria or design documents. There will always be some support load the tools won't be able to meet, but overall, the load will not grow. There's always time to improve the tools built into the development budget. Ideally, the time allocation uh, should then be uh, the baseline admin tools and then on top the much thinner uh, support existing features part and then you have the green space with developing and improving features getting much more time yeah it's continuously spending you know more than 85 percent of the time on developing features with a fixed amount of time already budgeted for the admin tools and that causing the support stuff to have much more of a sawtooth pattern and never kind of growing exponentially like you, it did in the first graph mm -hmm. Uh, yep. Uh, what tools to provide? So admin tools come in various shapes and sizes. There are some ways to provide support capabilities to your non-engineering team members. System visibility, for example. Many times support request to engineering is, why did this thing happen? This typically stems from a lack of system visibility to the rest of your team. An engineer may solve this by logging into the database directly or poking through files stored on disk or a cloud storage provider. This could also mean combing through logs. To support your team, provide them with safe views to logs. Maybe they're filterable to a specific user's actions. Provide them with an analytics user to a database replica that has limited permissions, or give them a wiki page or a short demo video on how to find basic data themselves. One unique solution they've used is to provide a Postman collection that was shared with the team. Rather than describe the whole API, uh, it had specific calls saved that were useful for support. Then they have sections about data modification, uh, once a user determines that it's wrong or what is wrong, a common request is to modify sorted data. This could be an incorrectly formatted email address or other data that is trivial to fix. To support this use case, they suggest using a third-party library that exposes a create, read, update, delete for internal users to modify system data. There's usually a handful of choices per stack. For Elixir, they list uh, Caffey and Torch. For Laravel, that's specific to their work environment. There's Nova. And for Python, there's Django Admin. Typically, you can expose CRUD for specific models and even search or filter on the model list views. Then they have support actions. Another feature of most third-party administrative libraries is the ability to execute predefined support actions. This is a great capability that works great for ongoing support tool development. If a support issue crops up more than once, you can easily create a new action to remedy it. Since there's already a whole framework providing this, you most likely just need to write one new function that takes in a few parameters. The admin tool framework will provide the authentication and framework to execute it. Yeah, definitely experience this one, whether it was a, a tool that migrated users from a legacy system to a newer one, or uh, converted their account type from one kind to another, uh, or just dealt with whatever the support things people had. 
uh, you know, if, if they're having a certain problem of whatever kind, if you get the same ticket more than three times, you should have written a mm. tool by then. <laughs> That's kind of the indicator. Then there's the audit trail part. One key thing to consider when exposing administrative tools is to capture an audit trail. If users are able to modify the state of importance or sensitive data, it should be logged who changed what and when. This should or this could be implemented by logging or database triggers. This may not always be necessary, but if you have a large team or a larger team and multiple people will be modifying things, it should be prioritized. Honestly, from our support perspective, the biggest time this comes in handy is being able to prove to the user that they were the one that changed yeah. that. Yeah, hands off, we didn't do it. It's like, here, here's the date and time and IP address when you changed that setting. And that's why it stopped mm -hmm. working. Because you were robbing things you didn't know what they meant. Yep. Uh, but yes, it's also very important to know that, oh, right, I didn't remember it, but yes, I changed this then. Uh, and maybe it was because they called me on the phone and were asking for me to or whatever. Um, but yes, having an audit trail is, you know, even beyond the sometimes the necessity of it for security and other things, uh, it just makes any kind of troubleshooting much easier when you know either for sure whether somebody changed this or not uh, or, or who did what to whom and when. Yeah, and not to, uh, to use it for finger pointing, just to resolve the underlying issue and then never having... Or just to understand the order in which these events happened, mm -hmm. uh, knowing, you know, this changed and then that changed, not the other way around, because they can have, it can really change what, how the problem could have happened or just the steps to recreate the problem uh, to be able to, to resolve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, then they also provide a couple of recommendations for taking a support-first approach to development. Uh, but we jump to the conclusion here, and you can read the rest on your own. Uh, they conclude with, they hope this guide helps you understand the importance of including support tools for your team from day one of development. I found it to be a huge time saver. When I've worked on a very small team, it frees up my time as I'd be the only one who can do the support work. When I've worked on large teams, it saved me as there would have been too much request volume to deal with. If you have any questions, just ask. So this next one is kind of a special thing, at least for me. Yes, uh, so next up, my Clara article is part of our continuing Open ZFS series, differentiating between data security and data integrity. Uh, while both are important, they're not the same thing, and kind of separating the two and understanding the difference uh, is something that people often have a bit of trouble with and they can so easily get conflated. Uh, so Benedict wrote a great article here talking about the differences. Woohoo! Let's hear. And in particular, ZFS ensures data integrity. From the moment data reaches the file system, ZFS is ensuring that the files and directories are not altered by means other than the file system itself, so that you know if faulty hardware or whatever changes the data on disk, when we read it back, ZFS is going to detect that and say, hey, this isn't what I wrote. This is something different. Uh, let me try to fix it or whatever. But importantly, it's never going to let that slip. It's either going to fix it or say, no, that data is not available because the copy we have is incorrect in some way. Data corruption can happen in more than one way, whether it's a broken cable or faulty memory chips or problems with the storage media or whatever, or even just temperature. Um, but it's important that we detect when that's happening and make sure that we deal with it rather than give the wrong data back because this causes uh, incorrect data that is read and then handed further up the uh, IO chain into memory uh, and then given to an application and that the application might crash and that'd be bad. But even worse, if the application doesn't crash, 
and uses that incorrect data uh -huh. and then does something completely wrong or allows someone to have access to something they shouldn't because one bit got flipped and now their access level is not what it's supposed to be it's something higher uh so you know with enough redundancy in the pool zfs will not only detect but actually be able to fix these problems uh, but really the important for your data integrity is that you know for sure that the data came out the same way it went in and hasn't been modified in some way whether that's on purpose or by accident uh, so the article talks about how checksumming works and how it's actually probably the wrong word for it in zfs because uh, it's actually more of a hashing, a cryptographic hash algorithm and providing very strong guarantees that a checksum doesn't necessarily, but it's what it's called. So uh, talk about that. But just like uh, we look at elsewhere, uh, there is a catch. If there's no prior record of what is supposed to be the healthy data, there's no way of knowing if the data is correct. And that's why most file systems don't have any ability to verify data integrity, right? They have maybe like a check disk or FSCK or whatever, and they can tell if there's something wrong with the structure of the file system, but they can't tell whether that data for that file is correct or not because they don't know what the data was supposed to be. But because ZFS has stored this hash of each block, when it reads it, it can calculate the hash now. And if it's not the same as what it's supposed to be, it says, hey, there's a problem here. Yep, and that's important to distinguish. Yeah, and Benedict's article goes on to talk about adding ZFS's integrity to other file systems. I can use a ZVol. And if you have to put some other file system on top of it uh, for whatever your use case is, you can at least still get the data integrity checking from ZFS by using a ZVol. Then it goes on to talk more about data security. You know, in this case, data security is more about making sure only the right people have access to the data. Uh, and whether that's basic Unix permissions or more advanced ACLs or whatever, ZFS is ensuring that only the people that are supposed to have access can actually read the data. Uh, and go on to talk about things like exec and set UID and, and other features the file system can provide, but also uh, encryption. You know, part of ensuring that the wrong people can't read the data is having some kind of encryption. And so with OpenZFS 2.0 and later, we have built-in encryption in ZFS. Uh, and this allows you to encrypt data so that if someone without the key loaded won't be able to actually see what the data was because it's secret. Uh, importantly, the other thing that ZFS does is that checksum is actually different if data is encrypted. Instead of just being the 256-bit hash of the original data, it's 120 bits hash of the, the data as it got written to disk, which is the encrypted form. And that's done so that ZFS can do, still do stuff like uh, verify the integrity and do scrub and resilver for failing disks and so on without having to have the encryption key loaded because it knows what the data should look like on disk and can verify that it's correct, and if not, repair it from parity and ensure the parity calculated version is correct. But the other 128K, or yeah, 128 bytes, is a, a cryptographic MAC. So this is a kind of uh, hash, but the output includes a signature that means that it could only possibly be generated by somebody that knows the decryption key. So when the data is encrypted to disk, uh, this Mac is calculated and stored as well. And that means that if somebody modified the data on disk, normally ZFS would detect that. But if someone was being really malicious, they could modify the stored hash as well so that it did match. And then ZFS would think it was okay, except for 
with ZFS, you'd have to do this all the way up the tree because the block that contains the hash itself has a hash in its parent, which has a hash in its parent, <laughs> in its parent all the way up. Uh, so it would take a lot of work, but someone could forge a ZFS file system to make it look right. But with ZFS's encryption feature, the Mac means that you can't calculate the right hash without knowing the encryption key. And so someone couldn't fake the data and make a pool that would decrypt and then uh, give back the bad data. And then we also talk about uh, the redaction feature and more. So if you're interested in the differences between integrity and security and how those are implemented in ZFS, definitely go check out the article. Yep. And I always like, when I read stuff like this afterwards, I I always think back to my English teacher back in school. They would be so proud if they would see me now writing foreign language articles, which is kind of normal for me these days. But yeah, I've come a long way. All right, uh, time for news roundups this week. And this is a 45-year-old Unix tool is finally getting an update. About time. And which tool is that? Arc, of course, gets updated by one of its creators just 45 years after launch. Yeah, well, some things take longer than expected. Arc, a software platform first introduced in 1977, has finally received a long-awaited update, among half a century after its inception. Almost half a century. What makes the launch more impressive is that it is the work of 80-year-old Canadian computer scientist Brian Kernighan, the very same, part of the team behind the software's acronym itself. AWK, Alfred Aiho, Peter Weinberger, and Brian Koenigan. POSIX compliance in operating system terms requires that it includes AUK, a programming language that's destined to analyze text files. First appeared in version 7 of Unix in 1979, which is credited with being the last version of Unix created by Bell Labs before it was commercialized by AT&T. Other POSIX-certified OSs include macOS, VxWorks, and ZOS. If you remember our episode last week we had a couple of um <laughs> you know in memoriams about some other os's that are certified unix here's the arc update in a github entry kerningham writes about the update and titles it with at bwk's email he says quote finally with a bit of spare time after the academic treadmill slows have gotten back to futzing around with unicode in arc unquote he writes that he now has it mostly working though quote through a combination of using UTF-8 internally for functions like length and conversion to UTF-32 in regular expressions, unquote. Found in the update is one realloc bug, which leads Koenigan to suspect that, they may, that they may be more, or there may be more. A fair amount of testing has already been undertaken, but he writes that, quote, clearly more tests are needed, unquote. Comments in the thread highlight the significance of the update and include one-liners like, wow, and respect. And uh, the register reports that the code was actually changed earlier in 2022, but was only picked up by wider audiences thanks to a recently released interview with Kerningham. Cool. I should definitely check out a newer version of Arc. Then here's a little bit of an install how-to. Installing OpenBSD 7.2 on an Odroid HC4. I've never heard about this hardware. Yeah. Uh, so it's another kind of system on a chip. Interesting. Ah. A bit of hardware. Uh, in particular, the fact that it has real SATA slots is what makes it more interesting, I think. Ah, there's a picture, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like a toaster. <laughs> yeah, they have a plastic yeah. case and a hard drive sticking out of it like a toaster. <laughs> yes, but with hard drive slots. 
Uh, so they talk about what they used. Uh, it's an Odroid HC4. Uh, so they have a three and a half inch, 14 terabyte SATA disk. And that's where OpenBSD and all this data will live. There's a second similar disk that can be used uh, for backups and so on. And a micro SD card uh, to boot the OpenBSD installer to get it going. Uh, then it's used to boot from the SATA disk in normal usage. Uh, for some reasons, not all micro SD cards seem to boot properly. So they had a, a Philips 32 gig that worked fine and an old Kingston 2 gig that didn't. Uh, they also have an Ethernet cable to gain access to the network, a USB keyboard, and an HDMI display. The OpenBSD ARM64 installer image was just the mini root 72 from the ARM directory, and then uBoot image gracefully provided. Uh, and they have a link there to get the uBoot image. So they plugged in the network cable, the HDMI screen, and a keyboard, turn it on, uh, remove the petite boot from its internal uh, embedded MMC. Booted OpenBSD from petite boot is not possible as of yet, uh, but booting OpenBSD using uBoot was, so they did that. So they, after they erased Petit Boot, they turned it off uh, and turned it back on. And the next step, they got their SD card imaged with their OpenBSD and U-Boot bits, uh, got it mounted and set up the serial port to go to the right place, and then uh, booted it up. And then they were able to install OpenBSD on the SD0 SATA disk uh, using a whole disk layout. Uh, so. Uh, note that if you're using a disk bigger than two terabytes, you probably don't want the default MBR option because uh, it won't be able to do it. So they use GPT, got that all up and working. Uh, once the initialization is done, uh, halt the system and turn the HC4 off. Um, in this state, OpenBSD is not yet bootable. Uh, without Petite Boot, the HC4 will try to boot from the micro SD card every time. So it's going to be replaced uh, with the U-Boot image that is already being used. The U-Boot process will then look for the SATA partition and boot OpenBSD. And so they have some extra notes about doing the installation off the microSD card, how to set it up to use two disks, uh, and how to restore Petit Boot after you erased it in case you want it back for doing the next thing. Uh, but they also got uh, Nextcloud up and running using PHP 8 uh, and Redis and MariaDB and all that stuff going on it, and even made a Samba file sharing server on top of it. Uh, which again goes to show why this uh, particular board is interesting because it has real SATA ports and means you could actually use it to build a proper ARM-based NAS rather than something that depends on connecting your hard drives via USB. Mm, nice. Cool. Uh, then we have the namesake for this episode, dot .files management. And this is about, well, you've guessed it, the dot .files that you have lying around in your home directory. Uh, not much of a project this starts with, but this might be useful for some folks. Here's how I currently keep track of all configuration on my laptop. The system I've settled on is copied from other people, tracking dot .files as a git repo, but taken to its extreme where the entire root file system is trackable. Importantly, any file on the machine can be added to the dot .files repo, and the dot .files repo doesn't interfere with any other git repos you're working with. Starting with the basics, the repo needs to live somewhere. So we initialize a bare git repo in tilde slash dot dot files. I named the default branch the same as this laptop's host name, in this case Magma, with the vague idea that multiple machines can share the dot files repo with different branches. It may make sense to have a template branch with most of the generic settings like vimrc and specific branches with machine-specific code fix. Ah, but that means a lot of merging between branches, which you may or may not have the patience for. So they make themselves an alias. Uh, alias dot files equals git dash dash git dir equals home mx slash dot files and dash dash work tree equals slash. 
Okay, so that's easy to type having an alias. Now typing .files status or .files log will show the status or log of the repo, regardless of if you're currently in another one. Of course, looking at the status will probably take forever as the work tree is slash, yeah, well, so it will list every single file on the file system as untracked. There are a few ways to stop this, but I went with simply telling git not to show untracked files. So that's a separate config, .files config dash dash local status dot show untracked files and set it to no. Okay. Then the files are not ignored. You can just add them normally, but until then they won't be listed. This is 90% of the work done. You can now add some files, either local in your home directory or anywhere in the system and commit them to the repo. Basically say dot files add slash dot whatever bash I see or something. Then you add some more and then finally commit all that. All well and good. But I shortly found myself craving more. So I extended on this with a few more features. First, I wholly depend on TIG, git backwards, for quickly seeing the state or history of a git repo. So to invoke TIG on the doc files repo, we use this alias, alias dtig in this case, uh, sets git dir variable to home mx slash dot files and git work tree to slash and then runs TIG as a whole alias. Second, because of the huge spread of where files are, I found myself always needing to list which files are explicitly tracked using .files ls files. It's really helpful to be able to quickly see where the config file was that you need to edit again. I went a bit overboard here and added a bash function to display a summary and that's provided. Cool. Uh, if called with arguments, it just invokes .files so I can do .status or whatever. Otherwise, it shows me a fancy summary that looks like this. They have a screenshot there. And with the first column showing the status flags and color modified, yeah, colors are not necessary there, but Okay, uh, in this screenshot, Firefox user Chrome has been modified and BashRC has a modification stage. The second column is the full path to the file and the third is the commit message for the last change affecting that file, a bit like the summary GitHub or GitLab might show. This setup is immensely satisfying in a bold, in the same way that Git lets you muck about with files about worrying, without worrying about getting back to a working state. I can now muck about with anything on the OS. The number of times in the past that I've had a problem found it and fixed it only to encounter that a uh, few years ago or a few, few years later have to work it out again. Well, suddenly it all seems worth it as I can now appreciate having a complete history of every config file I care about. One of the most common problems they encountered is speci especially with the Windows machine is that there's a solution to some problems that no doubt requires editing the registry, which they can do. But then a few weeks later, some software update reverts the fix. Hmm. I used to have a notepad with all the changes I'd made to the registry so that I can reapply them when they get overwritten. It was an awful, unsatisfying mess. The <laughs> same thing can happen on Linux, but at least now the, um, can or they can immediately see the effects by running my dot function above. If a track file is changed after a system update, I can see it and either restore it or deal with the problem some other way. But at least it doesn't sit there silently until I eventually run into the problem again. Uh, they started this with a while back, but the current laptop is the first time they've tracked everything uh, from a clean install. There's always a bit of hacking to get the boot process just right and to iron out the hardware quirks. And having that saved in the dot files history means next time, in a few years, I'll have something concrete to look back on instead of po poking around on the debts in the old slash etc. We could go further with this. I considered splitting the repo in two, either as two dot files folders 
for his two branches with a git work tree arrangement. One would be a shared branch with everything I always want, shell config, bimrc, and so on. The other would have the machine-specific config, keycode remaps, udev rules, and so on. This could be a very clean solution if I wanted to have everything tracked across multiple machines. I have a feeling there's some niggling edge case that could trip it up. However, there's something tracked in the shared branch conflicts with something you want to locally be different. It could be quite quickly turned into a mess. Anyway, that's my dot .funds tracking advice. There may be better ways to do it, but if you use Linux or any other Unix and don't have anything uh, like this already, I strongly recommend it. You know, at first I was like, who would need all of this? It's like I've had one .tcshrc file that I've copied around for 20 <laughs> years now uh, with a one-point changing editor from Pico to Nano. Um, and that was about it. But then I was like, on my laptop, yes, I've actually found myself into copying the Lumina config and Firefox stuff between them. And so, yeah, I can see where this would be useful. And especially when they get to the idea of having a common set and then overlay per machine so that, you know, on this machine, I want it this way. And on that machine, I want it this other way uh, could really be helpful. And, you know, as I've been making the switch over to uh, ZSH and having much more oh. complicated shell config, I can start to see why this is as well. And, you know, I've seen other people that I've worked with have, you know, you give them access to your machine and the first thing they do when they log in is git clone their dot file repo from GitHub or something and uh, make it yeah. all work. So what I recently did, I I keep most of my import dot files that I want to also use on other machines. I use them on, on a Nextcloud instance and I just symlink them from my home directory to where they are on the Nextcloud. And since they are synced on all the other machines that I have, so I will never be able to at least accidentally delete them. And none I found in Kitty, the terminal emulator that I'm using, that whenever you SSH into another box, you can tell it to copy a certain number of config files to that box automatically during the SSH and keep them in sync this way. So that way, whatever box I SSH into, it gets my vimrc, it gets my um, zshellrc, and a few others so that the transfer doesn't take too long and the login isn't uh, slowed down. That I kind of like. I just looked it up on uh, Kitty's website and there's a bit of a section there. And it doesn't copy the sim link, it's copying the real file. So that is kind of cool that I really adopted quickly too. Okay, let's adopt the Beastie Bits for this week. We have collected a couple of them. And the first we want to mention is the FreeBSD Journal. The November-December issue is out about uh, observability and matrix is the uh, major topic there. And yours truly has two articles in them because it happened that I had time to write two. Um, table of contents, just to read over that. Writing custom commands in FreeBSD's DDB kernel debugger, interesting. Dtrace, new additions to an old tracing system. Certificate-based monitoring with Isinga, that's my first article in there. ActivityMonitor.sh, Pragmatic IPv6, part four, that's a whole series by uh, Sato-san. The foundation letter, we get letters, Michael W. Lucas's letter column, always entertaining and uh, yeah, surprising. A conference report from Europe ESDCon. Then there's my practical ports column, the second article here about Prometheus installation and setup to monitor even more. And a book review, Kill It With Fire, Manage Aging Computer Systems and Future-Proof Modern Ones. So check, check out that uh, FreeBSD Foundation issue. They are free and they have been for a number of years now. You can download the full PDF as well and enjoy reading it. 
next up we have uh, somebody at NetBSD has ported the Hammer 2 file system over, or at least got a good start on it. Uh, they have a install and uninstall script. Uh, and currently the target is to get to read-only support, but write support is also planned once they get read-only working. Uh, and the tags in the repo currently are just meant for packaging. Uh, they don't really have to do with the file system's actual version number or anything. And currently uh, NetBSD's dash current branch is the only uh, thing they're targeting to get this working on. Okay. Yeah, good effort. We'll watch if there's something new in future episodes to report about this. And definitely help testing if you are in that uh, spot. They were making pretty good progress on a ZFS port as well, but that was based on porting it from FreeBSD when FreeBSD was still using the Illumos version. Uh, and so I think um, they lost a bit of momentum when uh, FreeBSD switched its upstream to open oh, yeah, there were a bunch of big changes in there. But imagine all these NetBSD uh, architectures running ZFS. Huh. <laughs> the future looks good. Um, looking at this next one, running OpenBSD 7.2 on your laptop is really hard. Not. Uh, this uh, says, follow the steps on this page, install OpenBSD 7.2 and configure an XFCE desktop and Firefox on the laptop. They used the ThinkPad L440 with Intel graphics and 8 gigs of RAM with legacy BIOS enabled and used the AMD64 version of the install.img image. Okay. Um, they have a, they divide it up into sections to have uh, an FAQ there and development man pages linked. So, and they assume that you have installed the Linux distribution before and you are familiar with the command line, you know, the basics. You will need to edit configuration files and some of the steps. And they're assuming that you can dedicate a laptop solely to OpenBSD. They use an old refurbished ThinkPad. And they pretty much walk you through all of the steps, which keys to press, what inputs to do. And at the end, you come out with a pretty nice shiny box with Wi-Fi, uh, power management enabled, and of course, packages installed that you need and want to use. Uh, allowing users to shut down and reboot, increase memory limits for programs, and setting up the uh, graphical environment for XFC. Nice. That should be getting people started in no time. We stay a little bit more on OpenBSD. We have MinIO on OpenBSD, an installation tutorial. So BeastieBits has a bunch of good install how-tos there for you. And definitely check this one out so that you get MinIO running for all your file uh, synchronization needs and file redundancy needs. Not too long. And they also have a second part, MinIO and uh, OpenBSD. I just see it's linked from the bottom. So definitely click the link. Yeah, so they say. Uh, MinIO is one of the object storage things. It basically provides uh, uh, API-compatible version of Amazon S3, but written in Go and backed by the storage you have. Uh, in this case, they're setting it up on OpenBSD. So they just package install it, set up the daemon, configure where it should uh, store its stuff, and you can have it uh, do the erasure coding stuff and you know make a cluster of a bunch of small OpenBSD machines uh, and provide S3 object storage. Mm. Yep, very nice. This next one is WireGuard VPN on OpenBSD. 
uh, written by Adriano, a professor at UFGD, which is the Universidad Federal de Grande Dorados. This is in Brazil. Cool. And yeah, all the tools and needed commands are provided. You walk through this and then get your WireGuard running. Uh, they, oh, they even have Android and iOS client uh, set up that you then can use to, you know, link uh, or create a tunnel. Yeah, basically, it, once you create the config file, you can pipe it into the QR encode thing and get a QR code that you can just snap a picture of with the app on your phone device and it'll configure it all for you. Mm -hmm. Oh, this could be a good um, practical exercise for my students next year. <laughs> QR encode, make mental note. All right. Very nice. People pro posting how-tos is the best thing because sharing those is uh, very good so that more people get exposed to it. Uh, tool for glamorous shell scripts. What's this is a, what's that about? Yes, so this is called Gum. It's a tool for making shell scripts that look pretty. Uh, leveraging the power of Bubbles uh, which is a, and Lip Gloss, which are two frameworks, uh, in your scripts and aliases without uh, writing any Go code. And so it does things uh, like give you interactive prompts and so on. So Gum provides highly configurable, ready-to-use utilities to help you write useful shell scripts and dot .file aliases with just a few lines of code. Uh, so you can do, you know, Gum choose and provide a list, and it will give you a little menu to pick from a list. Uh, or you can say Gum input with a placeholder uh, and a bunch of different things like that. So it's... It seems like it's a prettier modern version of something like Dialog, oh, yeah. uh, where you want to provide a slightly more interactive look, although this is a little bit more towards plain shell interface and not uh, quite you know, full screen uh, text user interface like you get with Dialog, uh, but kind of uh, a middle ground where you, know, you want it to be a little more interactive and, and friendly feeling, but without having to take over the whole screen even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see this being very attractive to a user who doesn't like the black and white text interface. They've never seen that before. Oh, this still is mostly the black and white uh, text interface, but it allows, uh, it like has a filter mode where you can kind of, it reminds me a little bit in that case of um, pipe cut, um, where you can actually kind of interactively um, do search strings and see what of the, the data you're catting into the filter is going to match as you type different filters. Oh, okay. So it can provide like an interactive grep where you can, uh, you know, cat the list of flavors into you know, pipe gum filter into favorites. And then, you know, if you type nana, then it's like, oh, that'll only match the word banana uh, and so on. Oh, okay. Ah, I see. And you can also have it only match the first so many entries and a bunch of interesting stuff like that. Yeah. And it seems to be part of a bigger project called charm charm.sh and that provides we build tools to make the command line glamorous so they have a couple of those tools we mentioned the lip gloss and uh, uh, bubble tea even <laughs> interesting how they name their tools all right check those out yes and they have one called vhs that allows you to uh, make demos of cli and and tui uh, text user interface applications uh, as gifs uh, by writing code and it'll generate a GIF, mm. <laughs> which I think is uh, what they were using uh, for the examples in the, the GitHub repo there. Yeah, could very well be. Eat their own dog food.
I also love that their contact email address is just vt100 at charm.sa. <laughs> yeah, you can tell the nerds right away. <laughs> uh, speaking of visualizations, uh, why don't you visualize your Git commits with a heat map in the terminal, like you can see from like GitLab and friends or GitHub even. Uh, Heatwave is a tool we found uh, for displaying a visual representation of your Git history. Heatwave generates a heat map of your Git commits, similar to how GitHub's heat map looks. View all commits on a single user's commits or a single user's commit for the past year or previous ones. Now in stylish red and green colors, it makes the perfect Christmas gift. <laughs> Behold the beauty of command line graphics. Yeah, well, for a quick overview, what was your busiest month or where you had the most time to do commits? Perfectly fine. Little things like that always let me uh, think about if people have too much time or they just do this uh, as a hobby. <laughs> BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Cool. Uh, I think we're at the end of this episode. We are. No uh, you know, feedback and questions there, but we had a big uh, amount of beastie bits to cover, so that uh, hopefully... Uh, fits well with your uh, idea of this. We may have future episodes, of course, and with feedback too, if you send us to feedback at BST now, and we will be happy to cover any kind of show ideas, topics, or blog posts you wrote, how-tos you found or written yourself. Definitely be a good addition to a future episode. <laughs>